Well, good morning, everyone. Please find your way. God's precious word, John chapter 8. I got my hearing aids. Problem is, I can hear myself talk, so I'm talking so low, nobody else can hear me. Everybody's saying, ha, to me now, instead of me saying, ha, to them. So if I'm speaking low, I want you to do this. And I know that's not complimenting the sermon, that's just telling me to speak up a little bit more, okay? So I will do my best up here. I was feeling bad about it, feeling old, told y'all last week. Well, I heard on the news that they're now releasing a Barbie doll with hearing aids. <laughs> Include everybody. I was like, okay, I'm still cool. <laughs> I looked it up. She's 63 years old. She aged a little different than I did. John chapter 8. Last week we learned how God's justice and grace is reconciled. It's, it is through Jesus that justice and grace are able to bring God glory. It is through Jesus that all of this is possible because Jesus is the only way. That's why Jesus said, I am. I am the way, the truth, and the life. The Pharisees were bringing down the law on the lady who had been caught in adultery. And instead of this woman getting hit by a truckload of condemnation, she found herself being hit by a freight train of grace. The gospel message is clearly seen in those passages. You see, she was guilty of breaking the law. Yes. The law revealed her sin. Listen to Romans 3.20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And just like that woman back then, we must be condemned by the law before we can be cleansed by God's grace. Law and grace do not compete with each other. They complement each other. Nobody has ever been saved or brought into the new covenant by keeping the law. That is the truth. But, it's all, but also know this, nobody has ever been saved by grace who was not first indicted by the law. They must, there must be conviction of sin before there can be conversion. And that's why I said last week, come to Jesus. Come to Jesus and introduce yourself as a sinner in need of a Savior. And it is then that you will know how God's justice and grace is reconciled. By seeing how God's justice and grace is reconciled, we are able to understand the transition that is happening here in John. We see the new covenant being brought in. It is the law that is written on the hearts of the people. It is a new covenant that is being fulfilled in Christ Jesus. Look down at chapter, uh, verse 10. Look what Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. No one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more, he said. Now, did he tell her to go study the law and make sure she did not break one point of the law? No. When Jesus said, go and sin no more, we are seeing the transitioning into the new covenant happening right before our eyes. It is now, it is now the law that is written on her heart and by the power of the Holy Spirit that gives her the ability to go and sin no more. It's no longer a law written on stone. It was the law that was given through Moses that commanded the people to stone this woman for her sin. And it was the one that fulfilled the law who did not condemn but commanded her to go and sin no more. Do you see what's going on here? 
The law that was given through Moses included the ceremonial laws, which we've been studying through this book of John. And these ceremonial laws prefigured the saving work of Christ. In other words, the laws that were given through Moses were mere copies of God's true redemptive work in Christ. So without Christ, those laws were weak and ineffective. What does the word tell us in Hebrews? We know that it tells us that blood, the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sins, the sins of God's people, or empower them to keep the commandments. The law could not in and of itself procure those things which it symbolized and signified. It can't happen. So the only way for the law or old covenant to be effectual is by the coming of Christ and the new covenant. The copy, the law, had to be replaced by the reality, and that is Jesus Christ. The shadow had to give way to the truth. So when we read, so when we read Matthew 5.17, we now understand what Jesus was saying. Matthew 5.17 says this. Jesus is speaking. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to what? Fulfill them. Absolutely. How did Jesus fulfill the law? Was it, not, was it by not breaking any of the law? Yes, but that's not the whole story there. The law is now fulfilled by bringing in the second covenant. The first covenant could not be fulfilled or be effectual until the new covenant had come. I think we err when we look at the old covenant and the new covenant like this. We say, well, the law is work and the new covenant is grace. Yes, in a sense, but it's better to see it, see the old covenant and the new covenant this way. The law is a promise and the new covenant is the fulfillment of that promise. You see, this, this was God's plan from the beginning. The book of Hebrews again explains how God always intended that the old covenant to, for the old covenant to lead to a new covenant. That transition is not to eradicate what God has spoken as many have taught. You know, they say unhook from the Old Testament. No, that's not true. It's intended, it's, 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 but it's to complete the intended, its intended purpose. Know this, as the son of God, that is Jesus, the God who gave the law to Moses, gave the prophecies to the prophets, would never ever have any kind of desire to throw out the Old Testament. He would not. Instead, Jesus declares that he has come to fulfill it, everything in it. Jesus is the key that unlocks anyone's ability to understand scripture and God's redemptive plan. That's why the, the great I am statements are so big when he says these things. It is Jesus stating, I am the one who is fulfilling the law. Pastor Ryan did a great job teaching on the I am the bread of life, right? We, we saw that the manna satisfied the physical needs of the Israelites in the wilderness, but only for a while. Christ satisfies our spiritual needs forever. For those who believe in Jesus Christ have eternal life. He is the bread of life. We now understand that the manna in the wilderness satisfied temporary hunger, and those who ate of it eventually died. But Jesus is the bread of life, and he provides the bread that leads to life everlasting. So do you see how everything, and I mean everything in the Old Testament, has been pointing forward to the arrival of Jesus and the Messiah? Another example that we've studied was when Jesus spoke of the living water in chapter 7. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. 
whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Again, an event that happened in the wilderness was actually pointing to Jesus. So far, we have Jesus tied to the manna that came down from heaven. He says, I am the bread of life. Jesus is also tied to the water flowing out of the rock in the desert, the water that kept him alive in the wilderness. He's saying, come and drink of the living water. And today, we will see that Jesus is the light of the world, tying himself to the pillar of fire at night and the cloud by day. They guided the people while they were in the wilderness. Jesus says, it is I that all the scriptures speak of. I am. I am, he says. One more thing I want to point out on Matthew 5, 17. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or, listen to this, the prophets. Or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Not just the law, but everything the prophets wrote. What Jesus did was this. He declared that everything stated, promised, and predicted in the Old Testament scriptures must come to pass or be accomplished in all its details. Everything he says. And he's saying, I am. I am the one who will bring it all to completion. I am. All the messianic prophecies about the Messiah in the Old Testament are fulfilled in Jesus. All the prophecies and end time details in the Old Testament are fulfilled in Jesus. Everything pertaining to the covenant of promise, that is the Abrahamic and Davidic and new covenant, are all fulfilled in Jesus. So you see, Jesus came to fulfill the law. And we are seeing here in John, we are seeing the transition as we walk through this gospel. We are seeing the fulfillment as it is happening. Amen. So let's read on. Verse 12, chapter 8. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I come from and where I'm going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who judge me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sends me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasure as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not come. So he said to them again, I am going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where I'm going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world what I have heard from him. 
They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the father. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing of on my own authority, but speak just as the father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him as he was saying these things. Many believe in him. Don't miss that part. You know, I mentioned a minute ago about the uh, Jesus's I am statements. They, they are seven of them that we will see in the study of John's, the great I am's we call them. But here in chapter eight, there's seven I am statements made by Jesus when he was confronted by the Jewish leaders. I want you to notice them or maybe underline them, uh, underline them in your Bible. But Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He says, I am not alone. He says, I am the one who bears witness. He says, I am from above. He says, I am not of this world. I am the Christ. And then we have the great I am statement in verse 58. Such beautiful words that tell us so much about our Lord and Savior. Amen. Anytime you say, see the words I am, dig in, dig in. If Jesus says something about himself, it will do us good to study it. So let's set up the scene here with Jesus pronouncing he is the light of the world. First of all, Jesus, again, teaching in the temple. As a matter of fact, he's in the, the, uh, the woman's courtyard. Remember when we studied the temple and its layout, the first court you come to is the court of the Gentiles. The second is the court of the women where the men and women were allowed to go. And the next would be the court of the Pharisees. That, that was the restricted area. And so Jesus is, is in what they call the court of the women. And since this, since everyone is allowed in this court, it, it's where it was a place where people would give their money, not convenient, but they'd give their money. They had like 13 receptacles that you could put your money in. And you know, this was the very place where would, uh, Jesus saw the widow give her last two coins. But the point is, this is a very large court, a very busy court. A lot of people are there. So it's a perfect place and a perfect time. For Jesus to say, I am the light of the world. Whoever believes in me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What seemed to be a simple statement was really earth shattering. So we are in the temple. It, it's towards the end of the, it's the end of the Feast of the Tabernacles. Tabernacle, perfect place and perfect time. Just like when Jesus spoke of the living water, perfect place and a perfect time. And by the way, I'd like to give a shout out to Pastor Ryan for his amazing dance moves around the pulpit this, that Sunday, showing us how the priest during the feast would pour the water over the rock in commemoration of the water supply that gushed out of the rock in the wilderness. I will always know what was going on when I read that text. Thank you, brother. But it was at that time that Jesus said, come and drink of the living water. It was the perfect time, the perfect place to teach that truth. Well, here we are again in the court of the women in the temple. And in this court were these huge lamps set up. They, and they were lit to, for the commemoration of the pillar of fire that led the Israelites in their wilderness journey. Now, like I said, they were huge. They were big. There was all kind of description of them and that they used the the robes, the old robes, the worn out robes that the priest had put in there to light them on fire. 
And uh, yeah, it's pretty interesting to go do that study. But these, these are so big and so many and so bright that the light from these lamps lit up much of Jerusalem. Think about that for a moment. There's no street lights. There's no other sources of light at that time besides small candles. And here are all these huge lamps lit so bright that it lights up the city, the city on a hill. So I'm sitting there thinking, going, I just wonder how far away you could be and see, still see that light. You know, there's no other uh, dirty light, they call it out there. You could just see this light on this hill. It had to be amazing. Many back then who saw that light might be thinking, wow, they are lighting up the whole world. It was the whole world to them. It was impressive to say the least, but it was a perfect place and the perfect time for Jesus, Jesus to say, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Some may be wondering what he meant, but the Jewish leaders clearly understood what Jesus had said. Look at their response. They didn't question what he said. They just immediately tried to discredit him. Verse 13. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. You have no proof to back up what you said. That's what they're saying. Basically, they're just calling him a liar. You're just a liar. We have to ask, why did a simple statement get the leaders so riled up? I am the light of the world. What's the ruckus all about here? Why did Jesus get such a reaction? Well, several things. First of all, in declaring himself to be the light, Jesus was claiming divinity. In the Bible, light symbolizes the holiness of God. You can see it in Psalm, Acts, 1 John. It's all over the Bible. And we can see it here in the first chapter of John. Make note about what Jesus said. Jesus claimed to be the light of the world. He's not just a light. He did not say he was another light. He did not say, I am a light in the world. He didn't say, I'm a light in Jerusalem. He said, I am the light of the world. In other words, I am the one and only true light. So picture this. Here's Jesus, regular looking Jewish man with no fancy robes or anything, no, no crown, no tassels hanging off, no bedazzling on his clothes, nothing fancy, just standing in the spotlight, making another astonishing claim in the temple, and he has everyone's attention. And because of where and when Jesus said this, the minds of the people were churning. Every Jewish person and many in the world knew about the pillar of fire in the wilderness. That's what they were commemorating at this feast, right? The pillar of fire represented God's presence, protection, and guidance. And Jesus says, that's me. I am. That's me. Jesus is claiming to be God here. And that's why he got the response he did from the Jewish leaders. The lighting, the lighting of all the candelabras during the festival reminded the people of Deuteronomy 4.24. The Lord your God is a consuming God, a consuming fire, a jealous God. 
You see, because we don't use fire as a source of light, we miss that. We miss that connection that Jesus makes between fire and light. You know, we got all kinds of lights and LEDs and all this. Back then they used fire. God is a consuming fire, but in Christ, God became, listen to this, God became light personified. Did you see that? God in the wilderness was fire. That fire was God's present protection and guidance for his people. Now, in Christ, God became light personified, meaning Jesus brought God's present protection and guidance into this world. It is through Christ that God is now known as light, not a consuming fire. Jesus is what? The light of the world. He illuminates the truth. He gives his children spiritual understanding and reveals God to us and what he has done for all of us. Now, some who were there that day may have also picked up on this. When Jesus claimed to be the light of the world, he was defining who God, who, who he is as God. That is, he is the one true light. Listen, for all people, for all people, not just the Jews. Isaiah 42, 5, 6 says this. This, this was probably ringing in their minds. These are the words that were written about the Messiah to come. Listen to how Jesus fulfilled the scriptures. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. Listen, I will give you, talking about the Messiah, as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Nations. A covenant for the people. A light for all nations. This has been God's plan from the beginning. Maybe some who were there remembered Isaiah 49.6 that says, I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. The Jewish nation itself was to be a light unto the nations. They were set apart to be a light unto the world. Just like you and I, right? Just like you and I, we are set apart. We are to be a light. We are to let our light shine for the glory of God. Amen. That's what we're doing. Our light is not supposed to just shine here on Sunday. We clean up pretty good and can do a good show here on Sunday, on Sundays. But our light is supposed to be shining all the time. Matthew 5, 16 says this in the same way. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. Our light is to shine on a lost and dying world so that the salvation of God Almighty will reach to the ends of the earth. You know, we have a couple of young adults who are graduating this year, Thomas and Marianne. Congratulations. Good job. Good job. And they're at the point where they're trying to figure out what, what's the next stage of life looks like, you know? Well, here's my challenge to you. However it works out, whatever path you take, make sure... Wherever you are, your light is shining. Keep that light shining no matter what path you take. Make that your focus. And you'll be able to see where God wants you to go. If you walk in darkness, you're going to be lost. Stay in the light that God has given you. Amen.
Gentlemen, report back in five years. Okay. One time my family and I were down at Myrtle Beach and we were leaving the beach on that Sunday morning. And we were driving by the House of Blues. It's a concert hall, I guess. I guess you can call it that. You know, I love it, still do. But I saw some cars in the parking lot and it was 1030 on Saturday and Sunday morning. And I was like, let's go see what's going on in there. Let's just, you know, see if we can get inside. I want to see the place, you know, let's go in there. Maybe there's some famous people that might get a chance to meet me. I don't know, you know, we're just going to go in there. But anyways, we go in and they have this awesome breakfast buffet set up. I'm like, all right, we're in. You know, on top of that, they had this incredible gospel band. I was like, now I know we're in. And they were rocking out the gospel songs, easy now, with electric guitars and drums. It was awesome. It was so good. It was so good. But at one point, this lead singer was going around to all the people and he would say, this little light of mine. And he'd put the mic out there and the people would say, thanks. Yeah, just like the bar back then. But almost. It's a concert hall. It's a concert hall. And, uh, uh, you know, everybody would respond just like you guys did. Some people sounded pretty good because he put the mic right up to their, to their, to their uh, uh, mouth. Some people sounded like me. But it was all in worship of the Lord. Some made joyful sounds, right? But he got to this one guy. And when this guy sang out, I'm going to let it shine. Everyone turned and looked, right? Who is this guy? He was good. I mean, he was real good. So good that the lead singer had him stand up, gave him the mic, and walked away. And we had worship like nobody's business. I mean, this guy was doing it. And you know what? He knew it. And it was coming from his heart. You could tell he really meant what he was singing. And I sat there thinking, I said, this guy gets it. This little simple song packs such a punch, but this should be on our hearts and all the, all the time. <clears throat> That's our calling, like I said it a minute ago. <clears throat> we are to let our light shine. And if we would let that thought control our decisions and the way we live our lives, if we would think about letting our light shine in everything that we do before we react to anything, how different would life be? How different would it be if we let our light shine at all the time, at all the time? Think about this. How much more love would there be if we really, truly wanted to let our light shine for the glory of God? That guy got it that day. I felt sure that when he walked out of there, he was letting his light shine. It came from his heart. We are commanded to let our light shine for the glory of God. Amen. Amen. Jesus is the light of the world, and he has chosen to use us to take the light of God to the ends of the earth. We are commanded to let our light shine to the end of the earth. What else are we commanded to do with the light of the world? Well, just like the people in the wilderness, we are to follow that light. We are to follow the true light. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me, follows me, will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Whoever follows, what does that mean? What does following Jesus mean? 
But to follow the Lord Jesus means to believe on him, to believe in him. As John puts it, believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So to follow Jesus is we must not only believe, but we must have to trust in him also. So to follow is to believe and trust. And not just to trust him with our salvation, but to trust him with everything. Think about it. I find this truly amazing in myself and everyone. Uh, we can trust Jesus with the most important thing ever. Our salvation. We can do that. We can trust him uh, uh, with our eternal life. We can trust him with our resurrection from the dead. And we proclaim that all the time. We rest in that. We have that peace in our hearts because we know he's got that. But to trust him with our everyday decisions or to trust that he wants what is best for his children. Well, we're not too sure about that. Doesn't that baffle us? We trust you with our salvation, the greatest thing of all. With this little stuff. I don't know if Jesus can handle this. I don't know if he could do this. Trusting God with everything brings our faith to a whole new level. Everything. We were talking one Sunday after church. And Terry and Lisa was out there a couple weeks ago. And Terry was praising God for answering prayer that she had been praying for years. Man, she was just excited. And I looked at her, and I said, all of that worried, and God had it the whole time. She's like, I know, I know, I know. Just like we all would, because we're, we're, we're the same, no different. And I made this comment. I said, trusting that God has it takes us to a whole different level in our faith. We can go to church. We can praise God. We can love God. We can say that we give it all to God. And then something comes along and smacks us right in the face, and we panic. And we immediately want God to fix it right now. We want God to fix it right away. Suddenly we see that, quote, trusting in God isn't as easy as we thought it would be. I said to Terry, I said, uh, trusting is a whole lot harder than we ever thought. And Lisa was in the back. She's like an amen corner. Amen. Yes, amen. Amen. We like having service out there. It was awesome. And the reason it's so difficult is because we want to fix it, Jesus. That's what we want. Just fix it. We want a Jesus that will fix whatever troubles we are having. And we want that fixing to happen on our time, our timeline. It is hard for us to trust that Jesus is perfect. His timing is perfect. His actions are perfect. We have to get to that point where we trust no matter how difficult it is. We need to stop doubting. We have to trust that God is in control. Amen. So following the true light is believing and trusting. Now also following the light of the world is part of our sanctification. He says, if one believes and trusts in the true light of the world, they will have what? They will have the light of life. They will have eternal life with our Lord and Savior. But after that takes place, after you introduce yourself to God as a savior, as a sinner in need of a savior, there's something that will not happen. It will not happen. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, 
but we'll have the light of life. If we follow the light, we will not walk in the darkness. We walk in the, when we walk in the light, we are set apart from the world. We no longer love darkness. The unsaved, that's the ones who do not believe and have not put their trust in the true light, are walking in darkness because they love darkness. We need to do a self-examination. Do we love darkness or do we love the light? Flip your, uh, over to John 3.16. Watch this. For John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is God's justice and grace being reconciled right here. Whoever, verse 18, believes in him is not condemned. Now watch this. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. You see that? They, they did not believe in the, only, in the name of the only son of God. And look, what does it say? Here's the judgment. Look at verse 19. And this is a judgment. This is what condemns an unbeliever. The light has come into the world. We know who that light is. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Apart from the light of the world, there is no deliverance from the darkness of sin. Apart from the light of the world, there is no guidance along the way of life. Apart from the light of the world, there is no knowledge as to the real meaning of life and the issues of eternity. The light of the world, Jesus Christ, is the answer to all of life. Amen. Jesus is declaring to all, follow the true light. Follow me. He's saying, I know the way out of the darkness. I know the way out of the darkness of sin. I know the way out of the darkness of sadness and sorrow. I know the way out of the darkness, darkness of death. Follow me and I will lead you to life, lead you to eternal life. Jesus stood in the light of the temple in the court, at, uh, in the light of the temple. The perfect place, the perfect time and said the perfect words. I am the light of the world. Follow me and have the light of life. The major message in this gospel written by John is this. The spiritual light that is Jesus Christ is now shining. Come to that light. Follow that light. But as we can see back then and many people today, they cannot comprehend what it means to follow the light. They don't they don't want to. They, they like the darkness. Why? Why would someone like the darkness? Well, they don't want their evil deeds exposed. They do not want to introduce themselves as a sinner in need of a savior. So instead, what do they do? They try to put out the light. They try to stomp out the light. They try to snuff out the light. They think there is power in darkness, but the darkness has no power over the light. John 1, 4, 5 says this, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, 
and the darkness has not overcome it. The darkness tries to overcome the light, but it can't. You know, you can walk into a room and you can cut on a light and the light will overtake the room. But it doesn't work the other way. You can't walk into a lit room and cut on the dark switch. Doesn't happen. Darkness cannot overtake light. The only way to have darkness is if the light is removed. That's the only way. Darkness cannot overcome the light, but it tries. It tries. Look at the response of the Jewish leaders when they heard uh, what Jesus said. When Jesus said, I am the light of the world. So the Pharisees said to him, verse 13, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. Instead of producing evidence, instead of asking questions about the situation, maybe like, what are you really saying here, Jesus? You know, how can you say that, Jesus? Are you claiming to be God? Instead of doing that, their best response is, you're a liar, you have no proof. Their response is darkness trying to overcome the light. That's how unbelief operates. Unbelief never has enough proof. The words alone that Jesus spoke should have been enough for them to believe. On top of that, they have seen his works, all of the healings. They have seen that Jesus had power over disease, demons, and death, and nature. But unbelief never has enough proof. Nothing new under the sun. The one who lives in darkness doesn't want to understand the light. They're looking for a reason not to be in the light. They're looking for an excuse not to follow the light. Jesus is the light of the world. And we're going to break down the response that Jesus gave them uh, next week. But as we can say, as we can see, there are only two responses to the light. Either you go to the light, you believe and trust, or you deny the light and you continue in darkness. You live in condemnation. The only two responses. You know, when I was a little boy, probably around 10, we had a record player in our house. Some of y'all don't know what that is. A 33 speed too. But my dad had this album, Hank Williams. It was a gospel album. It was a gospel album. I remember. And I played the song, I Saw the Light, over and over and over again. I really didn't understand what he was saying at that time. But I loved that song. It had a special place in my heart. And now that I have seen the light, and I know what the light is, it means even more to me. The song goes like this. He says, I was wandering so aimless, life filled with sin. I wouldn't let my dear Savior in. Then Jesus came like a stranger in the night. 
praise the Lord, I saw the light. Just like a blind man, I wandered along. Worries and fears I claimed for my own. Then like the blind that God gave back his sight, praise the Lord, I saw the light. I was a fool to wander and stray, for straight is the gate and narrow is the way. Now I have traded the wrong for the right. Praise the Lord. I saw the light. I saw the light, he says. I saw the light. No more darkness, no more night. Now I'm so happy. I'm going to put joy there. No sorrow in sight. Praise the Lord. I saw the light. Jesus, at the perfect time, at the perfect place, said these perfect words. I am the light of the world. Come to me. And Jesus gives that perfect invitation. Come to Jesus. Come to the light. And have and have the light of life. Amen. Pastor.